Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. This is going to be a short introduction as I have had to pre-record several episodes in a row for late September and most of the month of October. I am jumping in very briefly on the day before this episode releases, episode 91, the novelization of Frontios, a classic season 21 tale. We now have a full two-and-a-half-minute trailer for the forthcoming three David Tennant specials, which are believed to be coming out in November of this year, 2023, to coincide with the 60th anniversary. I've just come from watching the trailer. I will not play the audio from it, as you have doubtless heard it. Or if you're finding this episode several months in the future, you've probably seen the trailer and the episodes already. Let me know. How were they? It's very interesting how this contrasts to the trailers that we got during the Chris Chibnall era. Those trailers really told you nothing about the narrative flow of the upcoming story, apart, of course, from the Sea Shanty Sea Devils trailer. It was primarily a collection of images and out-of-context lines. This trailer gives the illusion of telling you everything you need to know about what's going to happen in the coming three episodes. There's a lot of Donna. There's a lot of Beep the Meep. There is a lot of the character who's going to be played by Neil Patrick Harris, and the Doctor saying, the Tenth Doctor, the David Tennant Doctor, saying, why did it have to be him? Of course, that leaves a lot of room for twists and turns that we don't know about, but David Tennant narrates most of the trailer via dialogue cultivated from the TV series, and there is a brief glimpse of Shooty Gatwa at the very end of the trailer, there's a lot that we don't know. Who is Neil Patrick Harris playing? What role is Bernard Cribbins going to have? He is briefly seen in the trailer, but is not shown having any dialogue. What is the role of Beep the Meep? And, of course, what is Shooty Gatwa going to do? Is he going to have a substantial role in the three episodes, or is he only going to be briefly cameoing at the very end of the third one? But, that being said, it is a narratively satisfying trailer. The visual effects look very, very good. And we will see in about two months what happens during the 60th anniversary. But, of course, we are going back in time to Doctor Who's 21st television season. The story is Frontios. The writer is Christopher H. Bidmead, who, as you know, is well-beloved on this podcast. The guest is Cy Hart, making his seventh appearance on the show. Always a pleasure to talk with Cy. He has very strong opinions about Frontios. And we are going to share our opinions on the other side of the break. Let's get to it. They all say who is this is Tim Trelaw. This is David J. Howe. I'm Peter Purvis. I am Sadie Miller. This is Lauren Cornelius. Larry, it's Fraser. 
for all things in the Doctor Who collecting world and beyond. The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. I'm Larry Van Mersberg and your host, and I've been collecting for 42 years. You're listening to Doctor Who Literature on the Direction Point Podcast Network. Keep turning the pages. And rejoining us on Doctor Who Literature for what is probably the 10th time, I think he is by far my most frequent guest, Cy Hart. Welcome back. Hi, Jason. It's good to be back. It's, it feels like a little while since um, since we did the Leisure Hive last, wasn't it? It does. It does. Uh, back when I first started this show, I had a failure of imagination as to what this podcast would be. So my original plan, once I cycled in guests, was that I was going to have the same six guests over and over and over again. And fortunately, circumstances have proved me wrong, and that no longer needs to be the case. So The Leisure Hive was your sixth book, and this is in fact your seventh book, but it's been about 22 books since Leisure Hive, or as uh, Andrew Smith wants me to call it, Leisure Hive, and whatever Andrew Smith <laughs> So uh, you are coming back, fortunately, a few more times in the next few months, and you will have more than 10 appearances by the time all the dust settles, but this is your seventh book for the fifth Doctor, and before we get to the book, since we are coming up hard on the 60th anniversary, and since I know that the Trap One gang is working on a anniversary special, for this show what I want to do is I'm asking each of my guests recently, what is your favorite Doctor Who TV story? And of course, this excludes all the spin-off media and non-canonical TV spin-offs. What is your favorite televised Doctor Who story between 1963 and 2022? Wow. I mean, that's a huge question, isn't it? I mean, um, fortunately, I do have an answer. So uh, I knew um, you would. <laughs> um, my favorite story has been my favorite story since um, this. Uh, it's my second ever Doctor Who story, and it will always be City of Death for me. It was just something... Um, I first saw that when I was four, then it was repeated the following summer, and that was always just the one. Right from the start, that was the one that, that got me. I I loved the story, and I love it even more as an adult. What's interesting is that I've asked about half a dozen people this question now. Now, I am recording these episodes out of order based on things that I am doing with my family in October. I have basically pre-recorded every October episode, even though you and I are still speaking in, it's only September 21st right now. So I've talked to a lot of people with episodes that haven't aired yet. The number one singular feature is that every single person that I've spoken to has named a classic series story and not a new series story as their all-time favorite which is fair news. This is a show that skews a little bit older. Most of my people are people that have been Doctor Who fans since before the new series was a thing. I am hoping that by the time I get to November 23rd, I find somebody who has their favorite story <laughs> as a new series story. Although for me, when I did my top 60, and that's going to be a separate episode, nine of my top 10 were classic series. So I'm showing my, uh, my age, I guess. And the second interesting point is you're not even the first person to mention City of Death. And that, of course, is a story that is going to feature high in my top 60 mm -hmm. and not just number 17 or 35 or even number 9. That'll be pretty high up. What about City of Death speaks to you? Because I have noticed 
there's been a little bit of a pushback, and I've heard a lot of other podcasts where folks say that City of Death is not even their second or third favorite story from season 17. I mean, for me, it's in a class by itself, and I don't buy into that argument, but it is an interesting point. So there has been some pushback. Any titan gets pushed back against eventually. What about City of Death remains your favorite after all this time? I, it's sort of a mixture of things. It's it's remember uh, some of it is is huge nostalgia. I mean, this is this is what always plays into my my love of Doctor Who is is um, sort of particularly my my childhood favourites. Were I can remember lying on my grandparents' um, uh, living room floor with my copy of the 1979 Doctor Who annual and watching this and just being so utterly engaged with the story. And um, it's something my mum said recently, actually, because she said, because we were talking about Doctor Who, because we do this every so often. And she was saying that sort of right from the start, she said, you'd it was like this thing that just captured your imagination. And she said, the one in Paris was always one that I remember you really sort of cuddling up on the sofa and watching together and, and then seeing it again sort of the following year. And she said, it, there was something about it that captured your imagination. I think she said it was the design of Scaroff particularly was a um, big monster with one eye in the middle of its head. She said, you used to draw that a lot. So she said that obviously sort of triggered something that you were just sort of beguiled by this. And I think... I mean, we all know Douglas Adams is a genius and Douglas Adams on the back foot having to write a story over a weekend is pretty magnificent, really. And we were, Doctor Who was just so lucky to have him. It's witty and it's clever. It's funny. And as a young child, I was scared by certain moments in it. I think production-wise, it's pretty faultless, for, particularly for the era it's from. Graham Williams was cleverly sort of throwing all the resources at one story to show what they could do if they had proper resources. And I think all of that just shines, and it's got the best TARDIS team. <laughs> so, I find it so hard to disagree. Not that you want to disagree with somebody's favourite. Your favourite is your favourite. But when I said that City of Death is not playing in the same league as every other story. It is not the story that launched Julian Glover, but it is because of this story that he got cast as the bad guy in Four Your Eyes Only, making him a Bond villain two years later in 81. It's a bit of a misnomer to say that Julian Glover is the bad guy in Four Your Eyes Only. It's really Topol's movie, right? Because Julian Glover, you think he's a good guy, he's not. Any other Bond movie, the bad guy gets all the oxygen. But with Four Your Eyes Only, Topol, you think he's a bad guy. He's really the good guy. He gets all the oxygen rather than Julian Glover, who gives a very mild performance. But because he becomes the bad guy in James Bond, in the 1980s, he's also a bad guy in Star Wars, and he's also a bad guy in the Indiana Jones trilogy. So with... City of Death, he jumps off to be this iconic 1980s bad guy in three of the biggest franchises in history. It's a magnificent performance. He is so suave and cool and collected and calm. Um, he, Yeah, he's faultless. And it's not just Julian Glover, because you also have Dudley Simpson, you know, was doing 
six or seven scores a year for like a decade. You can forgive him for just phoning it in. He actually goes out of his way to create something new and original and fresh. And you can just hum City of Death over and over again. And you use it as your theme into every episode, which is always a joy to hear. I mean, I, I was um, at the proms when that was performed and I had I had a tear in my eye. It was a very unexpected moment. I didn't know it was coming. And Dudley Simpson was in the audience that night as oh. well, which was extra spectacular. So it was just wow. I yeah, my my poor friend who was next to me just sort of said, "Are you okay?" I said, "I'm just having a moment here. I did not expect to hear this wonderful piece of music played live here tonight." When I was in Paris for the first and so far only time in 2018, my family is there because it's Paris. I was there because it was City of Death. <laughs> yep. So you have, like you say, the best TARDIS crew, even though K9 is not in it. The Doctor and Romana and Tom Chadbon playing the canine of the story. Everything comes together in perfection. And to quote Discontinuity Guide, just when you think it can't get any better, here comes John Cleese. Yep, exactly. So there's, yeah, there's some very underrated stories in season 17, but with City of Death, there is no mistake. This is just a moment of perfection. I can watch it over and over again and never get tired of it. Yep, and quite often there's still new things to spot and new little gags that you have haven't landed for you before that suddenly hit and things like that. It's such a dense script that there are, yeah, just, yeah, brilliant. And Michael Hayes just knocks it out of the park with his direction as well. It's not showy direction. He's not one of Doctor Who's auteurs, but he's more than a safe pair of hands and um, works. He casts brilliantly. So he gets the very best performers to perform one of the very best scripts. I had Ian Potter on the show a while back, and we were talking about mythmakers. And Michael Easton Smith was an action director who was taking this comedic script and making it not a comedy. So you can imagine that in the hands of a less skillful director, if you had made this in the 1980s with Ron Jones, for example, you might have missed all the beats and it might not have seemed as funny as it is. But Michael Hayes knows how to get... Like, for example, the reaction shot that closes part three, the cliffhanger, it's Julian Glover smiling genially at the camera just after he's had David Graham's character killed off in the most horrific fashion. It's a great way to end an episode, and not too many other folks would have thought of that. No, exactly. Yeah, it would have normally ended with a um, a zoom on the... the, um skeleton or something like that as a sort of memorable last image but yeah julian glover's grin is is wonderful in fact his face is all three cliffhangers because the part two cliffhanger is him walking yes. in the door and the part one cliffhanger is his chin sticking out of the uh Jaggeroff mask <laughs> yes <laughs> So we've talked about favorite stories. You've given a terrific answer. Let's talk about favorite seasons. And I asked this for a very specific reason. Just thinking about the classic series right now, if somebody asks me my favorite season, very easy. Reflectively, I answer one, two, seven, eighteen. What are your favorite classic series seasons? Um, eighteen for sure is is top every time. Um, be eighteen, seventeen. I love it as well, almost equally. Um, I love, I love six. Six is a bit of a favourite, and oh yeah, I'd probably go 
maybe seven and twenty-six. Twenty-six is a pretty common answer. It's not my answer, but I know mm-hmm. a lot of folks will bring it up. You're talking about season twenty-one. I am in the middle of a run of three straight season twenty-one novelizations. You have book ninety-one, Frontios, this week's book. You have book ninety-two, Caves of Androzani. And then you have book 93, Planet of Fire. They are released out of broadcast sequence slightly. But when you line these up, one, two, three in a row, you have three phenomenal covers by the great Andrew Skilleter. And they're three great books. And this is where the target line is starting to get out of that 120-page prison. Each of these books is about 140 pages of text, even the Terrence one. Looking at these three books in a row gives me a tremendous rush, and when I posted a photo of all three lined up in a row on Twitter, I got very positive engagement. Does season 21 have an argument for being one of these stealth great seasons that is not quite as recognized as it should be when you're talking about the classic series? Oh, um, yeah, I think so. I mean, um, it's a It's a very strong season, and I think it often gets unfairly dismissed because it contains um well it contains what is generally held as one of the all-time highs of doctor who followed immediately by one of what is generally held as one of the all-time lows and i think it is that that low at the end of the season that kind of drags it down for people um i think it's very very strong sort of in the middle as well so it, it's one of those ones I I remember very fondly. And funnily enough, the, the story that we're talking about today was one that I had very few memories of from seeing it as an eight-year-old back in 1984. And um, the rest were, were all all sort of seared into my head for, for various reasons, but this one um, less so. So it's one I've sort of rediscovered more as an adult and fallen in love with. And I would say it is the um, it's my favourite Davison story. I will mention this a little bit more during the audio essay that follows this interview. This is a story that I've only ever come to appreciate more and more over the years. I like it a little more every time I see it. And I now acknowledge that it is an especially good Davison because you have Davison playing the doctor the way he wants to play it. Finally, you have Janet Fielding and Mark Strickson both giving standout performances. You have Christopher H. Bidmead on the script. So, you know, the script is going to be the work of a master what about this story now makes it your favorite Davison? Um, I think um, you hit the nail on the head when you said um, that the doctor, um, Peter Davison is playing the doctor he wants to play because Christopher H. Bidmead is writing the fifth doctor. Whereas a lot of season 20 and Davison has said this himself, he's more an exposition machine and he's not well characterized here. He is characterized to perfection he is the old man in a young man's body. He is um, he's written wittily and he gets lines that he can actually play that are character lines rather than just telling people what they already know or already don't know. And he seizes every single one of them. I mean, there are so many that I could could pick out of a hat and just say he plays that to perform to perfection. But it starts with him turning up through the console room door and just saying, not hat people are you, either of you. <laughs> and that's just, that's perfect. And finishing with um, just that scene with um, put the two hat sides together and we'll have a pair. And it's just, 
he he is just brilliant. And then all the way through, he's got he's he's slightly flippant. He's slightly he's not he's not passive in the way his doctor is often written as passive. And I think Davison seizes every single opportunity that this script gives him and runs with it and gives and is just magnificent throughout. In season twenty one there are five different companions cycling in and out of the TARDIS. We start the year with four. We finish the year with one. Along the way, we lose Tegan. Along the way, we lose Turlow. Along the way, we lose Chameleon. And then we gain Perry at the end of the year. But Frontios is the only... Doctor Who story in which the longest serving companion out of the five is given center stage. And I'm talking, of course, about the hat stand, which has been a fixture of the show <laughs> for over a decade at this point. Is Christopher H. Bidmead a genius for being one of the only writers to make the hat stand not only a character in the story, but pivotal to the resolution? Oh, uh, yeah, it, it's. <laughs> it's so bizarre, isn't it? I mean, and the fact that the people of, of Frontios don't know that the hat hat stand is something inoffensive is 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 really funny. And but it's not played for laughs; it's played seriously. Turlo has got it and is brandishing it like a weapon because it's had that odd moment where where a puff of energy has come out of the end, sort of residual energy from the TARDIS, and that's wonderful. I mean, we don't get the the Davison era is so lacking in wit and humor a lot of the time, often to the detriment of the stories that could probably could have done with, with moments of that. So when we do get it, it it's, and it, it's just so clever that it's not played for laughs. It's played very seriously, but the whole situation is just completely and utterly absurd in a very doctor who kind of way. And it's not only that the puff of energy comes out, but it's the way it's the look on Mark Strickson's face as he's brandishing the thing. There aren't too many actors that you could say, and now it's time to do hat stand acting. He makes it work. No. And there's also Plantagenet has been struck by a meteorite and he collapses for unrelated reasons at the exact moment that the puff of energy comes out of the hat stand. So it's mistaken yeah, it's mistaken as a weapon for good reason. Mm-hmm. And Mark Yeah, exactly. And so yeah, and it mean it it's a means to the end for the doctor being able to get what he needs um, to do the sort of next part of his investigation and find out what's going on. So yeah, it, it's just oh, just Christopher H. made me being brilliant, and this is always a good thing. At the end of the Star Trek original series episode, the Space Seed, Kirk and Spock have this conversation about what are we going to do if we check in on Khan's colony in a in a thousand years? What are we going to find? That launches the movie Wrath of Khan, which is the greatest Star Trek movie ever, and also a tremendous burden on the franchise because every movie and TV series after that has tried to be Star Trek II again and again, and you can't really duplicate that kind of intensity. But let's ask the same question of Frontios. What do we do if we go back a thousand years? What is the significance of the hat stand in their society a thousand years from now? You can imagine a scenario where it's worshipped as a god. <laughs> oh, hat stand I, mean, I always imagined it in a big glass case being immortalized and no one being allowed to touch it because it would, because it was such a, 
it was a symbol of them being freed from the tractators and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I could I could see the God thing coming up as well. <laughs> I hope it comes back for the sixtieth anniversary, and I think RTD is on the same page as me. I think the hat stand is gonna have a big role to play this November. <laughs> You've heard it here first. <laughs> what else is there to love about Frontios? We've talked about Davison, we've talked about Bidmead, we've talked about the hat stand, we've talked about the companions. What are some other standout it's features? A, it's a very good guest cast. Um Again, it's not a story that has a showy central performance. It's just everyone is on the same page and um, they're working together. I think um, Mr. Range and uh, Norna feel like a father and daughter and there's sort of moments of tenderness between them and moments where they're afraid for each other and sort of that that familial love is really strong sort of between them. Jeff Rawl is really good quite early on still in his career as Plantagenet, who's scared and trying to keep this not and in his father's shadow the whole time. And it's, it's a stereotype um, for a reason, but it works so well because he's, yeah, he's sort of been thrust into this role that he's not ready for because of a tragedy that they don't really know what it was because it's all been hidden. And so that's a really great performance. And he knows that if he's not not seen, that Frontios will will dissolve into chaos. You've got um, Plant uh, Mr. Brazen, who is a very stand up and bluff um, sort of soldier, doing his job and knows exactly what's expected of him. And um, yeah, he's it's a it's a an interesting performance. He's he's not always. Sometimes he's sort of singled out for being a bit wooden, but he's playing the character to perfection. That is exactly how that character would would be. And Peter Gilmore was a huge TV star coming into this, having anchored his own series for nine years before Frontios. <clears throat> yeah, I thought playing Brazen, a very similar character. <laughs> true. I thought Brazen was the bad guy when I first saw this because he's playing an antagonist, but of course he gets a nice heroic death scene. Uh, mm-hmm. Jeff Rawl, as you mentioned, comes back and he plays a terrific Mervyn Pinfield in Adventure in Space and Time. Leslie Dunlop, who plays Norna, comes back in Happiness Patrol. So I mean, these are all yep. these are all actors with a very long legs career-wise. Yeah, exactly. So and yeah, and they're all all cast brilliantly. It's it's a really nice ensemble piece, and and again, all the guest characters get good moments as well. So they get heroic moments or good character moments, so there's lots to play. What is Mark Strickson's best performance during his two years on the show? That's a really interesting one because there's a good case for it to say that it's um, this story because he gets a lot to do, but he gets a lot of um, mouth foaming and uh, mad eyes and and sort of being possessed by his race memory um, acting, which is is good. I, I'm i not sure he's ever actually better probably than Mordrin Undead. I think he's really spectacularly good in Mordrin Undead. But um, this would be sort of a close second, I think. I think Enlightenment and Planet of Fire are also in the mix. So those are the stories where, mm-hmm. not coincidentally, he gets the most to do. Yes, but- I don't think he ever gets singled out for enough praise as one of the top 
companions because it's difficult to be a male companion because you're never the focus of the show. But he always manages to grab the spotlight whenever he needs to. Absolutely. And he's got a good knack of um, sort of stealing scenes by um, looking over his shoulder or pressing a button on the console so that the focus goes on him when um, sort of to the detriment of others. I mean, he's not always greatly served by the scripts. It has to be said. There are some some stories that don't know what to do with him, particularly um, once his story arc is completed in Enlightenment. He's not always brilliantly written, but there are always flashes of brilliant performance from Mark Strickson. He doesn't give a bad performance ever. Then the next two male companions after him are Noel Clark and John Barrowman. So I think Mark Strickson certainly wins a good guy contest. Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> but yeah, there were no male companions for 20 years. Of course, much of that is the mm-hmm. wilderness years, but no male companions on the show for 20 years in between him and the, and the next fellow. So the focus is always on the young female companion, but Mark Strickson proves that a male companion just works, especially if you give him the good part. Absolutely, and he has a ni- he has a nice relationship with Peter Davison's doctor, which always comes over well, I think. So yeah, it's it's good. He's good. And Janet Fielding and Peter Davison, when they are not antagonistic to one another, do they make a great comedy pair, especially in the back half of this story? Oh, um, those scenes where um, she is furious because he's said she's an android and the walk's not right and then there's the accent is is um brilliant and i notice in the book that um they they stop at the walk's not right um so um the, i do wonder whether the accent was something peter davison managed to slip in in rehearsal maybe and um when because he's, he's sort of playing off off the script very well and i'm wondering whether that just sort of crept in at the last minute yeah, the books are almost always based on the camera script, so anything that's added in rehearsal or ad-libbed on the day of is not going to be in the books. But you can totally imagine him saying, wait a minute, this is the perfect character moment because Tegan is characterized by her accent nine times out of ten. we got to pay attention to it. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, and they have some really good scenes together in this story. Some of them are not actually antagonistic as well, and they're they're sort of working together. I, mean, I always love the scene where... Um, they're walking through the tunnels and um, the doctors, they're busy saying, well, airflows usually go from A to B and usually you want to be at B or A. And then Tegan just sort of turns around and says, I don't want to be at B or A. I just want to be back in the top. Oh, (laughs) and, and it's just, just lovely. And um, just the way he turns around and says, well, you can figure out about that. (laughs) And, (laughs) and things like that. It's just really, really lovely, lovely moments sort of between them. And I like that. She's sort of the one who makes, gets Norna and Turlo into the ship to go and steal the to grab steal the acid um bottles that they need to power the the um the lights and things like that. And she's quite gung ho in this story and and up for doing it. and obviously the investigation of the um deaths unaccountable and things like that. And she's not afraid to stand up to Brazen and say, look, I found this and I'll admit I was trying to break into the the thing, but you need to know I'm not. Yeah, I've seen this. What's going on? What racket have you got going? She's ready to call out bad behaviour, just as she was in Lycopolis. And that's the side of her character we don't always 
sort of come back to, which is quite nice. Again, it's Bidme coming back to another character that he created. That's right. And knowing how she's going to react and what, what her the basis of her character is. You have, in the new series, you have this two-parter written by Chris Chibnall called Hungry Earth slash Cold Blood. It's a Matt Smith story. Ostensibly, it is a 21st century rewrite of Doctor Who and the Silurians. To what extent is Hungry Earth basically a shot-for-shot remake of Frontios rather than a Silurian story? Well, yeah, and it's kind of a mixture of them both, isn't it? Because you've got the bodies being dragged under the earth and even down to the name the hungry earth is a direct steal from this where because we have that line where norna says um he said the earth was hungry it was a child's answer she says but it makes total sense as a grown-up yep Mm -hmm. exactly so you know it's absolutely owes a huge debt to frontios because it's a great image of bodies being dragged under the ground by a mysterious force. And uh-huh. I think the Tractators are a far more mysterious and interesting force than than a Silurian capsule or whatever dragging you down <laughs> under the ground. This is kind of why I prefer Doctor Who to other forms of science fiction. Like about 10, 15 years ago, there was this big Hollywood blockbuster movie called Cowboys vs. Aliens. And it's about some alien menace invading the Wild West in the 19th century. There's lots of explosions and stuff. The movie suffers because the aliens are these, you know, generic CGI monsters and they don't talk and it's just all special effects and and, and big bangs and booms. What's great about the Tractators is it's not just the idea of these, you know, enormous earwigs who can exert gravitational pull. The Gravis has intelligence and the Gravis has some really funny conversations with the doctor in part four and the doctor baiting the gravis into putting the tardis back together no no don't do it knowing exactly that he will when you give a monster a voice and a personality i think it works better than just generic cgi bad guys that don't talk oh absolutely and it's it's really interesting that the gravis is the only one that's got the intelligence and i i just come to the book i'm I'd quite forgotten about the idea of him having a separate voice box that hovered in front of him that um, sort of is talking for him. That is, that's a really beautiful idea. Doctor Who obviously in 1984 was not up to having that, that um, portrayed well on screen. That would have been far too heavy CSO and far too demanding for Paul Ron Jones, who was not the most um, dynamic of directors anyway, who might have struggled a bit with that. So, so obviously it's simplified, but it comes over really well in the book that also it's um, translating for him. And so not all of the the, um, the translations are right and, and things like that. And it adds a sort of extra layer of humor. It's, it's really, really good stuff. Ron Jones was out sick during the BBC director's course when they explained that cameras can pan <laughs> and zoom. It is mm-hmm. an act of frustration when you're watching a Ron Jones story in sequence, surrounded by other more visual directors like Fiona Cumming or um, what have you, some other great directors of the Davison era, whose name, of course, now escaped me. Yeah, Peter Grimwade or uh, Matthew Robinson. Matthew Robinson. 
Ron Jones never moves the camera, and you're just desperate as a viewer. You get anxious because the camera isn't moving, and you're just looking at two characters talking, and the camera doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't become a part of the story. That being said, I think Frontios is kind of director proof because the acting and the dialogue is so good that you don't really pay attention to the fact that the camera is rooted to its axis and never turns or spins. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think he he's very good. He captures the atmosphere and the the dread. I don't know whether that's because the actors are are playing that all so well that um the sort of fear that this colony is is very close to breaking point sort of comes across really well and you know i think everyone is doing their jobs competently which is not not a bad thing so so it is kind of you're right ron jones proof (laughs) (laughs) and there are a lot of peter davison stories that are kind of spoiled because roger lim and his quote-unquote dreary synth wine drowns out a lot of stories and it becomes an act of antagonism to watch a story like arc of infinity or terminus and have to hear roger lim's music to what extent does Frontios benefit from being the last of Paddy Kingsland's Doctor Who scores? It, it's interesting. Paddy Kingsland is a is a fascinating um, scorer of Doctor Who because um, not many of his scores are the same. He's always trying to do something different. He's very melodic, which is very good. And this one, he's um, found the new panpipe setting on his um, on his synths, <laughs> and so that gives it a a feel that's different to all of the other stories around it, which is is a good thing. So he's very good at the atmosphere and adding sort of the right notes when things need sort of um, sort of bringing up. So he he's very good at forefronting the action when when it needs it. When maybe the visuals are slightly lacking, he adds a bit of a bit of a beat that sort of carries it across. And uh, yeah, I think this is a, it's a lovely score. It's it's really good. So I think we've talked about Frontios, the TV story, in pretty good detail. We've given the story the gravity that it deserves. Oh, very good. That's a pun drawn from the novelization, of course. When did you first read the book? So I read the book um, sort of not long after it came out. Actually, I was telling Jason just before we started, I actually have the copy that I first read, which was um, which I found in Harmon's Water Library in Bracknell. Um, so it was um, a lovely new hardback copy with the fantastic Andrew Skeletta cover. Um, as you said, season 21 is blessed with, with a run of the most brilliant and atmospheric covers. Um, Sort of, I think one of the one of the most dynamic set of covers for a whole season ever, um, and so I have the copy that I was the first person to borrow from the library. Still, so so yeah, it was a it was a bit of a surprise. It wasn't wasn't one I was expecting to see on the shelf, and I remember sort of picking it up and being very excited to read this one, particularly as I'd liked Christopher H. Bidney's other two novels very very much. Um, so and it didn't disappoint. I think this is a this one stand this novel stands up really really well and you have i believe a hardcover copy i do i have a hardcover and a paperback copy as well so yeah i'm very lucky (laughs) my paperback copy is the original that i would have bought or had purchased for me as my babysitting allowance in 1985 or 86 I still have the original B. Dalton Booksellers price sticker of two dollars and ninety-five cents, covering up one of the Gravis's antennae. Never pulled it off. Not well. Don't now. I'd probably rip half the cover off. <laughs> but this is a first edition. This is uh, one of my few f- 
first editions. Mm-hmm. And there's this interesting dedication by Chris Bidmead, who had given a funny dedication to the Cast Revolver novelization. This book is dedicated to Alan and Marcus and the machine that made this possible. I'll miss their company. Don't quite know what that references. Any ideas? I suspect it's um, it's probably the word processor that he, he typed the novel on. Ah. So knowing Christopher H. Bidmead, he was a big fan of his word processors. So, and they always found a way into most of his Doctor Who stories. So it's entirely possible that that's... Maybe they were the people who sold it to him. That's true, because Legopolis is basically a story about his home computer. The main guest character in the story is named for his monitor. The bubble memory is a major plot point. That's the inside of his computer. Yep, and um, in Warrior's Gate, they have the MZ um, gun, which is um, the name of his word processor that he had at the time. So, yeah, there is a precedent here. And there are two extras who are given names in the novelization who are not given names in the TV story. But I'm speaking, of course, of Kernigan and Richie. And who are they? That is a very... You're going to have to tell me because I don't know. <laughs> they are the developers of the C language. Oh, right. Oh, that makes sense. So he sneakily gave them a shout-out, and somebody on Records Doctor Who noticed this in the mid-'90s and asked him, did you really put Kernigan and Ritchie of C fame in the Frontios novelization? And he responded, yes, that was rather naughty of me, wasn't it? <laughs> but again, very, very crispy me. So, yeah, well, well done. You do mention, of course, that on TV, the Gravis speaks for himself. In the book, he is given a human cadaver as his uh, sort of uh, wandering voice box. I actually prefer the Gravis talking for himself. I think the cadaver is maybe a little bit of body horror too far. Yeah, well, the novel is full of um, full of body horror. I, the um, descriptions of the excavating machine is something that they could not have done on TV in 1984 with all the body parts and bones that are used to to um, to tunnel. It's it's horrible. It's really grim, and it's exactly why they are pulling the bodies down. Otherwise, there is no reason for them to keep pulling these bodies down. That they need these parts for their machine. Um, I mean, the central image of the the corpse of Captain Revere, who is barely alive in the centre of this machine, his brain powering it, is quite a powerful image on TV because he looks like a zombie. Right. But I think having a machine with with severed arms and legs and and heads or what and skulls or whatever all all over it, I think would have been a step too far. It works great in the book, and you can conjure it up and make it look as horrible as possible in your head. And Brazen's death on TV is pretty bloodless, but in the book, he's given a much more, I think, graphic demise. Oh yeah, yeah, he yeah. Um, is um, Christopher H. Bidme going for the Ian Marta approach of writing a novel? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not quite his head is severed, o- splits open with a uh, with with lots of goo or whatever. But it's it for for someone who'd written sort of the more cerebral novels of Castrovalva and Logopolis. This one, he's going all out for a bit of an action thriller and a bit of bit of body horror as well, which is quite an interesting sort of diversion for him, I think. Yeah, it isn't something he was doing. Now, the, the, the monitor's death 
in the Legopolis novelization is a form of body horror, and it wasn't portrayed that way on television because it would have been impossible. But yeah, you're right. He did have an interest in that sort of thing, and Frontios is really the story where he comes to the fore more than any other. So when I came up with my top 60 list, then again, that's going to be a separate episode closer in time to the anniversary. I did this as a thought exercise, and then I used it as the centerpiece of an L.I. Who panel back in August. But I came up with my top 60 Doctor Who stories, full stop, 1963 to 2022. Now, I did have some stories standing for others, right? Because I didn't want to have every William Hartnell historical on the list. They could have been. I didn't want to have every 1960s Dalek story on the list. They could have been. So I had to make some choices. I didn't want to have all three Christopher H. Bidmead stories in the top 60 because I want it to be a representational list. And it's a given that Bidmead is one of my favorite writers for the show. So Frontios did not make my top 60 because, again, I was trying to get as wide a cross-section as I could. So when I have a Bidmead story very high on my list. It has to stand for all three of them. Mm -hmm. We've already heard that City of Death is your all-time favorite, but we've heard that Frontios is your favorite Davison. If you were to do your top 60 list, where do you think Frontios would rank? Oh, I think it'd probably be top 20, I think. It's, um, like you you said earlier, it's, it's a story that I come back to and I just like more each time. In fact, I have this with with um, Bidmead's two Davison stories, to be to be honest, I I absolutely adore Castrovalva, and that would be top three Davison for me. So I'm I'm a big Bidmead fan as well. So I was very pleased to get get this book and and have a chance to read it. So yeah, I think it would rate rate quite highly for me. And again, I think the book would stand high in my favourite target books as well. I should do that. I've never actually done a comprehensive ranking of my top targets. Maybe at the end of this podcast, I will. I think that's, that would be a good time to approach that when you've read them all again. When Terrence Dix died in 2019, I immediately, and this is showing the age, I blogged about it back on my now largely abandoned WordPress site. But I came up with my Terrence top 10. I would probably have a very different top 10 now that I've read all of his books in a span of almost two years. Well, most of them. I've got a few more yet to come down the rest of this show. But yeah, I think a target top 10 would be an interesting exercise because Legopolis and Castro Valva are books that are so special to me and I've memorized large chunks of them. I don't know that Frontios would make my top 10 or 20 or top 60 novelizations list. Again, with the same theory that I want to have a representation. So Legopolis is going to have to, mm-hmm. to bid me books. But I think this is a superior novelization and we haven't talked about the changes there is some significant changes to the ending of this story because there's a character who barely registers on tv who is kind of the centerpiece of the book oh absolutely yeah and that that's a bit of a bit of a surprise so there's a very good showing for cockerel indeed like in the book he talks he, he foreshadows right away you know, nobody realized how extraordinary Cockerell was going to turn out to be. When you watch on television, you're like, wait a minute, what does that mean? Because he vanishes in the middle of part four. There's no proper exit for the character. But what happens to him at the end of the book? No, there's that wonderful moment, isn't there, where he, he kind of takes control. 
And um, there's the the brilliant line where um, is Bidmead says Cockrell's voice was clear and confident, a tone that would have met with Brazen's approval. That he's yeah, that he is absolutely he's got away with these people. That he is almost like he's the the common person who can speak for for everyone and be a voice in government that they would trust, almost probably like Captain Revere was. And I do wonder whether he is going to, he, he's obviously going to be high up with Plantagenet, but is he going to supersede him? There is that feeling that maybe he's going to take control of this this colony and, and see it through. Page 141, behind him, also in formal attire and looking every inch the professional, came Cockerell. Page 142, alone but in good hands, said the doctor, looking at Plantagenet and Cockerell. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, and Cockerell gets that, gets the um no more terror des- descending from the skyline that Plantagenet gets on TV. So it's a, it's always like, is Bid, Bidme's got, got things to say about this character that maybe he didn't do enough service to on TV, or maybe they just felt that Plantagenet and Jeff Rule deserved that moment on TV sort of as the, the nominal hero of the story. And as we learned from the DVD, the story overran and they had to cut a lot of material. So there was probably just no way to get an extra five minutes of Cockerell in part four. So he's the character that has to go. That's probably not what Christopher H. Bidmead wanted. Maybe we can blame Ron Jones for that. I don't know. I'll be curious if we can get the, when season 21 comes out on Blu-ray, I'm curious if we get the earliest drafts of the script and maybe Bidmead had this in mind all along, but it had to be cut for reasons of time. Yeah, it's entirely possible. Cockerell is this roguish character, and he's not a good guy, but he's given a second chance when he's freed from the Gravis, and he makes the most of that second chance and becomes a hero. That's a great little story arc, and I, again, it's, it just disappears on TV entirely. Yeah, because... Um... It's interesting because he's sort of set up as the as the rebel who's going to leave the colony. He's um, he he's given up on Frontios, but by the end of the book, he hasn't given up. He is ready to be part of this colony and reshape it, which is yeah, a really interesting um, sort of character development. It's nicely done. So speaking of nicely done, it is about that time where every week. I challenge my guest to a game, and this is a game you've played before. We are here this week to play 20 Questions. Okay. So you know the drill by now, being one of my most frequent guests. I am one Doctor Who story from the archives between 1963 and 2022, chosen at random from the Choose a Story button on the randomizer.net. Using 20 yes or no questions, you are going to have the fiendishly clever job of figuring out which story am I. Okay. What's the current target to beat? I believe the winning answer was Mark McManus. He got it in four or five. I think it was five. 
So I think okay. it is five to tie, four to win. Right. Well, that's not undoable. <laughs> There's always the Hail Mary option. You could always get it in one. Well, exactly. And I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a chance. Okay. Is this story Death to the Daleks? Ooh, you've taken one of Mark McManus's favorites. That's certainly a Hail Mary that he could have used. But no, I am sorry you are incorrect. It is not Death to the Daleks. Okay. Is this a 20th century story? Your second question, is it a 20th century story? Yes, I am a 20th century story. Question three. Okay. Are you from the 1980s? No, I am not from the 1980s. Now, you have a 10-year run. If you can guess the right story from that entire 10-year run, you could be the all-time champion, or you could go the more predictable route and try and narrow it down piece by piece. Question four. Okay. Now, you know that no human has ever failed this game. Chat GPT did. You are almost guaranteed to win. The suspense lies in how many more questions will it take you to go from 10 seasons to one serial. This would be the time for another Hail Mary, I think, because if you're going to win it in four, (laughs) you're going to have to guess. Okay. Are you the Macra Terra? Ooh. Speaking of classic series stories that were revisited heavily in the new series, but no, I am not the Macra Terror any more than I am Gridlock, which is the Macra Terror in the 21st century. Question five. Okay. Um, Were you made in 625 lines? And my memory is that the 625 line format begins during season five. So if that's the case, then yes, I am a 625 line story. Question six. Uh, Are you in color? I am in color. Question seven. Okay. Do you star John Pertwee? I do not star John Pertwee. Question eight. Okay. Were you produced by Philip Hinchcliffe? I was produced by Philip Hinchcliffe. Question nine. Okay. Are you from season 13? I am from season 13. Question 10. And now you're guaranteed to win because you have more questions remaining than story choices. Exactly. Um, Do I feature unit? I do not feature unit. Question 12. Am I... My all-time favorite Doctor Who story, Planet of Wretched Evil. And this is why I thought you had a good chance of Hail Marrying, because you, I believe, are the first guest on Doctor Who literature whose randomly selected 20-question story was a book that you yourself featured on this show. (laughs) So, yes, I am Planet of Evil, which Sihart starred in my conversation on all the way back in episode 34, an episode that I barely remember recording because that was at least 18 months ago. But yes, you are correct. Well, there we go. (laughs) I'm undefeated by this game. (laughs) 12 is not a stellar performance. It's fair to middling. Had you just Mm -hmm. guessed every book that you had been on, you would have gotten it a lot. Well, yeah, well, maybe that's my strategy for next time. 
and then none of those will turn up. <laughs> well, to quote the Time Ram podcast trailer, 20 questions is a cruel mistress. Uh, no, it's a random number generator. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sai, you have been doing a lot of other podcasting work, including a lot of work on Trap One recently. What are some other recent projects of yours that you want to bring to our attention? Well, um, going up shortly around the time this episode comes out is um, the Trap One look at um, the new and the old and the TV version of Warriors Gates, where the three are one, um, which was ah. a brilliant conversation that myself and Jason had, along with um, your other guests, um, regular guests, um, Den- lovely Denise Sutton and um, the wonderful Fraser Gregory. So that was a, a particularly outstanding one along with um, our very recent um, Trap One hosts visit to the BFI to watch the bit, um, to watch the amazing new version of the five doctors, which was, was wonderful. It was so nice to be sort of with, with our fellow hosts, Pete and Conrad and Mark um, all there together. It was a wonderful day and, and really good. And our field report was, was really, really good fun to record. One day I am going to have to time a visit across the pond with one of these BFI slash live trap one events. One day I will just do a quick spontaneous weekend trip to one of these things and show up unannounced and surprise everybody. But right now with the U S government shutdown looming and my daughter's bat mitzvah coming up, this is not a good time to drop money on a trip across the pond. Mm -hmm. It will happen one day. One of these days I will make a live trap one recording in the UK. Oh, for sure. And I, no one could get tickets for the five doctors. So it was an incredibly <laughs> difficult experience anyway. That I can so believe. That, that, yes. So, but hopefully some sort of some of the later ones will be slightly less oversubscribed and, and we can sort that out. Maybe if they do a big BFI special on um, the sensor rights. <laughs> or a story that is not going to sell quite as many tickets as the uh, Blu-ray five doctors. Exactly, and there, there hasn't been the the same clamour for tickets for the new version of the Underwater Menace, so which went went on sale this week. So I haven't heard people being up in arms that they haven't got tickets for that. I think Underwater Menace is very underrated. I think it gets a non fair shake, and I look forward to covering that on this show. And I believe I will also be on the animated version episode of that for Trap One. I've got a lot to say about Underwater Menace. The same way that I was a tireless defender of both Sensorites and Keys of Marinus, two unfairly maligned Hartnell stories over on Trap One. Mm-hmm. That's a long way down the road for this podcast, though. I just want to say that Underwater Menace deserves a second chance, and maybe the animation will give it that richly deserved second chance. Well, hopefully nothing in the world can stop that happening. <laughs> You're fired. <laughs> Sai, <laughs> as always, thank you so much for a phenomenal recording. I will have this episode out in a few days' time, and I look forward to seeing you again on Trap One. Thank you, Jason. It's always a pleasure to be back. Doctor Who Frontios by Christopher H. Bidmead, televised as Frontios Teleplay by Christopher H. Bidmead, televised in January and February 1984, paperback release date December 10th, 1984, target book number 91, cover artist Andrew Skilleter. 
The TARDIS has drifted far into the future and comes to rest hovering over Frontios, refuge in one group of survivors from Earth who have escaped the disintegration of their home planet. Fleeing from the imminence of a catastrophic collision with the sun, a group of refugees from the doomed planet Earth... Yes, that's oh. enough, Tello. The Doctor is reluctant to land on Frontios, as he does not wish to intervene in a moment of historical crisis. The colonists are still struggling to establish themselves, and their continued existence hangs in the balance. But the TARDIS is forced down by what appears to be a meteorite storm, and crash lands, leaving the Doctor and his companions marooned on the hope-forsaken planet. Doctor Who fandom is not a static thing, and my opinions constantly evolve. I would have first seen Frontius on TV mere days after the novelization's paperback release date. I've said many times on this program, and doubtless will say many times more, that the Enlightenment Part 1 cliffhanger was the moment after which I never voluntarily missed another Doctor Who episode. Voluntarily being the operative word, of course. I did still miss episodes, especially in the early days of my fandom when I didn't yet have my own set of blank VCR tapes with which to record the show when I wasn't going to be home. Long Island's power utility in the mid-80s, then known as Lilco, the Long Island Lighting Company, was often known for inexplicably long blackouts, which would also make watching Doctor Who impossible. And so it was that I missed part one of Frontios when my PBS station first aired it. Don't remember what the specific reason was anymore. I just missed it. Kids today, of course, have no idea of the struggle. They no longer have to miss anything. But it's a character-building experience to miss a particular serial's first act, then have to piece together, in part two, just what happened in the opener, while still keeping track of the unfolding text. This was before I had the Lofficier program guide, so I had no idea that the next episode after The Awakening which I had loved, but more on that in a few weeks, was called Frontios, and indeed my initial reaction to the Part 2 opening credits, and I still remember this almost 39 years later, was that the word was like the breakfast cereal. Frontios! In 1984, Frontios was not my favorite story. I knew nothing, at age 11, about the making of a TV show, other than behind-the-scenes glimpses occasionally shown on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which, yes, I was still watching, over my kid sister's shoulder at the time. I didn't know about set design, or directing, or studio space, or tight production schedules. It was a shock to me when the How Stammers Walker handbooks came out in the 90s, and I learned that all these serials were shot on just six days of studio, for example. I also, at the time, would not have known that Ron Jones was, compared to Peter Grimwade or Fiona Cumming, who directed Bidmead's first two Doctor Who serials, comparatively feeble. But I did know intuitively that I didn't like stories that attempted outdoor scenes indoors, or that were made up primarily of gloomy tunnels or slow-moving aliens in bulky costumes. That opinion of Frontios held for, well, for a few decades, when I watched the story in 2018 or 2019 and sent a review to Stacy Smith's ratings guide, I likened it to The Godfather Part 3, a decent story, perhaps in its own right, but a far cry from the first two outings. And yes, I put Legopolis and Castrovalva right up there in quality and enjoyment, 
alongside the first two godfathers. Don't at me. But then I watched Frontios again as part of my Twitter pilgrimage in autumn 2021, and boy, did it suddenly land for me. Davison's humor, finally playing the Doctor the way he wanted to play the role, Mark Strixon's intensity as Turlo is dazzling, the guest cast is quirky, Bidmead having a better handle on dialogue and motivation for even his tertiary characters than did, say, a Johnny Byrne or an Eric Sayward. Patty Kingsland's score was in my head for days afterward. This is, sadly, Kingsland's final work on Doctor Who, but he did get to score all three of Bidmead's scripts. And yes, just like Nino Rota was such an essential element to the success of the Godfather movies, so too is Patty Kingsland to the success of Bidmead. So, with that assessment of the TV story out of the way, there's the book. Let's get to it, as somebody once said. Frontio's The Novelization is what you would expect from a story about the malevolent forces of gravity. It is densely packed and gripping. In fact, arguably more so than its TV parent. Frontios in book form is the story that Christopher H. Bidmead wanted to tell on TV, but couldn't, because the script he submitted ran too long when filmed, and because he included too many sets. Ah, 1984, when there wasn't enough budget to erect a TARDIS corridor in studio to run alongside the console room. Oh, and also Ron Jones, not to speak ill of the deceased, but Bidmead, remember, had Grimwade and Fiona Cumming direct his first two stories. He probably was not expecting to have to get saddled with Ron Jones, whose visual style was so static that he makes Michael Mann movies seem to have a lively pace. But, as you'd expect from the witty wordsmith who penned the Legopolis and Castor Valva books, see episodes 72 and 76 of this podcast, respectively, Frontios, the novel, is jam-packed with Bidmead's signature observational humor. Few wrote the Doctor to Peter Davison's strengths, better than El Bid. For example, glasses, like the Doctor wears, are described as, quote, occasionally useful for reading, when the print was very small, or the book unusually dull. Turlow, who I came to appreciate more and more during my last two Davison watch-throughs, and, of course, getting to see the man in person in Gallifrey 2021, which is one of the most fun convention interviews I've ever seen, is thrown when the doctor demands his help during a surgery. Quote, it turned out that the doctor needed somebody to hold his coat. Many laugh-out-loud passages. But, and this is new for Bidmead in his third novelization, the book is graphic in its images of vile body horror, trading away the lyrical worlds of Legopolis and Castrovalva, for the grisly tractators and their corpse-driven machines that director Ron Jones either wouldn't or couldn't realize for TV. The opening TARDIS scene is funny, with Bidmead's characteristic wit describing the way the Doctor and Turlow are each driving themselves to distraction out of boredom. Our introduction to the people of Frontios is also amusing. Mr. Range, the fussy civilian science officer, quote, continued to flutter like a pigeon looking for the best foothold on a statue, and tons of other funny similes. Bidmead works in observational humor from his day job as a technical writer. Tegan reads a handbook that refers her to Appendix F, even though the handbook only goes through Appendix D. This must surely be based on the author's personal experience. As I revealed to Cy earlier, 
two random Frontios techies are named for Kernigan and Ritchie, the inventors of the C programming language, somewhat on Rekart's Doctor Who 30 years ago, when asked which Doctor Who book featured characters named Kernigan and Ritchie, responded, The Sea Devils. And the political barbs are very good in a story about a colony in civil war and ruled by an inept youth named, of all things, Plantagenet. Brazen worried about, quote, wild speculations that were dangerous, not because they were true, but because they were believed. The perfect description of America in the age of Trump, written in 1984. Fun fact, or not so fun fact, I edited this version of the audio essay the week that a spineless TV journalist named Kristen Welker, who is well admired by my wife who's in the industry, and my wife calls her the Welknado, benignly allowed Trump to lie for a full hour on a Sunday episode of NBC's Meet the Press, and kept referring to him as Mr. President, even though, of course, he isn't. Although, thanks to her efforts at kosherizing him, he may well be again in 18 months. Where was I? Oh, yes. Frontios. Focus, Jason. Deep breaths. My home. Tracked Satan's. I've seen all this before. Quick, we must get him to the surface and get help. He's speaking, Father. I think it's important. They were there, waiting, destroying us from inside. Sounds like something coming up from his past, like a memory picture. Once, long ago, on my home. You remember them? We remember them. The people of my planet will never forget. It's more than his past. It sounds like deep ancestral memory. Tractatures! Once, long ago, my home was an infection! Bidmead adds mystery to the book by liberal use of foreshadowing, directly telling the reader that the main characters are unaware of something strange or mysterious that's going on around them. We're told as soon as he meets Tegan and Turlow, that Cockerel is extraordinary. This is bizarre if you're coming straight from the DVD, because Cockerel has hardly anything to do on the air. But the book being a director's cut, come to find out that Bidmead put Cockerel in a dozen other scenes that didn't get broadcast. Cockerel in the book has a distinctly heroic story arc, with a happy ending, compared to the TV broadcast where he vanishes without explanation halfway through part four, the book puts him back where he belongs, and is more interesting for it. The Doctor by Bidmead is great, isn't he? The Fifth Doctor, quote, often made the mistake of assuming everyone else was as clever as he was. Bidmead neatly transitions from a moment of Brazen ordering the Doctor's capture, to Brazen having, quote, been completely chased out of the Doctor's thoughts. The New Adventures novels of the 1990s intentionally avoided writing from the Doctor's POV to keep him mysterious. But Bidmead is inside his head the whole book, and it's a hoot, with the Doctor mentally composing jokes about, quote, the gravity of the situation, while in the grip of the gravis. Deleted TV dialogue restored for the book gives the Doctor a nice speech about the importance of mathematics, too. And, of course, who could forget the awesomeness of Peter Davison negotiating with the story's principal bad guy? I'd, uh... I'd like to negotiate a surrender. There is nothing to negotiate. 
Oh, absolutely. You can have it all. Frontiers, its unhappy occupants, the lot. I don't think it's fair for us Time Lords to interfere. You admit you are saints? But why should we let a bunch of stuff shirts deprive you of your own form of transportation, hmm? However primitive. Primitive? Well, in comparison to Gallifrey and Time technology, of course, but then what isn't? The... the TARDIS! What this? Oh yes, well as I was saying, you can have Frontiers, sir. Uh, all the fixtures and fittings appertaining thereunto, and I'll pull my TARDIS together and get off your patch. Hmm? I should like to see it. This TARDIS. Well, it's not all here at the moment, you understand. It's, uh, it's been spatially distributed to optimize the, um, the packing efficiency of, uh, the real-time envelope. The power of travel is beautiful, Doctor. Very beautiful. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, as you can see, from this panel, Gravis, I control all the main TARDIS functions, the uh, time coordinates, spatial coordinates, all inoperative at the moment, of course, because the spatial distribution circuits are switched in. Ah, now you really will have to be more careful, Gravis. Now the autoscan's picking up the location of all the concealed TARDIS components. Oh, well, not to worry. I shouldn't think it's even within your powers to reassemble them. Besides, what would you want with an old Type 40 time and relative dimension in space machine, hmm? But I do want it, Doctor. The TARDIS. Infinite travel within my grasp. Oh, no, Gravis, please. Take everything else but leave me the TARDIS. I will have it. Oh, no, Gravis, please, I, I beg you. I... And I could listen to that scene all day long. And in the assembly process of editing this episode, I probably have. But let's move on to more important things, like my words, rather than Chris Bidmead's. Unfortunately, as witty and entertaining a writer as Bidmead is, the book also eventually needs to have a strong plot to keep the reader guessing, and good mini cliffhangers at each chapter to prevent the reader from putting the book down. This is where Frontios falls a little bit short compared to Bidmead's other work, the plot is familiar, the same colony ship in trouble that we saw in back-to-back -back stories under Bidmead's tenure as script editor, Full Circle and State of Decay, but has no real unique twists or revelations, apart from the budget-saving device of not introducing the monsters until Part 3. Tonally, the book is all over the place, like one passage where Turlow amusingly sees his reflection as, quote, a freckled smudge, but then imagines his flesh rotting away to the skull. Yeah works for Poltergeist the movie, not quite so much in the book. And I didn't need that image in my head, thank you very much. And while budgetary concerns on TV caused the Gravis to speak in RP from his own lips, the book restores one of Bidmead's less felicitous scripted ideas, a cadaverous translator machine made up of a dismembered colonist. Again, ew. In terms of stuff the editor might have missed, Norna has her mouth gagged and stuffed full of food, and then, trying to escape a few sentences later, grips a knife between her teeth. I think we know which day lunch was served early at the Target offices. But, while those two paragraphs of obligatory minor complaints are there in an effort to be even-handed, it really doesn't bother me, not with witty prose like this elsewhere in the book. Quote, As these Frontios people did everything so badly, escaping shouldn't be too difficult. Or... The Doctor was not very fond of tunnels. They were frequently damp, dark, deep, and dangerous. 
That is a method of transport ranked only a little higher than sitting absolutely still, underwater, waiting for the right current. That may actually be a Legopolis callback, come to think of it. Fratios at times is a bit dreary on TV. It is probably the least remembered of Bidmead's contributions to the series, although, as Sai and I argue, it is also probably one of the high points of the Davidson era. The book is, for me, not quite as quotable as the previous novelizations, although it's not too far off, but in many ways it is superior to the TV broadcast. And if you haven't come around to love Frontios the way that Sai and I have, the long way around, the novelization will have you considering the story in a much improved light. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, we have reached the end of the 1984 novelizations. We have a lot to look forward to in 1985. We continue on with the adaptations of season 21. The next two books up are the last two Peter Davison stories, and they are both absolutely ace. We also have several trips back to the past. We return to the William Hartnell era twice. We return to the John Pertwee era for the first time in a long time. And we also close the year, 1985 that is, with a triptych of Patrick Troughton stories. But as long-time listeners of this podcast know, I typically take a break and do a bonus episode after every two years' worth of novelizations. From this point forward, we are going to take a break and do a bonus episode after every single year of novelizations. I have a lot of guests and discussion panels lined up. And since we are only about seven or eight years away from the last year's worth of Target books, this is a good time to pick up the pace and give you more bonus episodes with more great guest content. Speaking of guests, I have already recorded an interview with a classic series, television, and novelization writer. The conversation has already been recorded, and it is a terrific one, even if I do say so myself. We are joined for the first time on Doctor Who Literature, but not for the last time, by Andrew Smith, the author of Full Circle on TV, the author of Full Circle the Novelization, the author of many, many Big Finish outings. We have a lot to talk about. Join us next time, won't you? Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Barsky. Jim Sangster, and yours truly. This week's episode was written and edited by me. Our logo was designed by Jim Sangster. Special thanks to my special guest, Cy Hart, of Maximum Power and many other podcasts. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Dr. Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, on Mastodon at DR Who Novels at Mastodon.social, and on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages.
Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.